So I can't quite believe it. We're now two-thirds of the way through 1 Peter. So today's message is message seven out of, of nine. So I thought it would be a good idea before we get into our text today to just do a quick summary and a quick reminder of where we've got up to in this book. If you remember, brothers and sisters, we've seen, haven't we, that Peter wrote this book to a group of believers in Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey, in AD 65. And these believers were going through various trials. They were suffering. They were being persecuted indirectly at the hands of the Roman Empire, particularly at the hands of the Emperor Nero, who was the emperor at that time. And what God's been doing through Peter over the first two and a half chapters of this book is he's been wanting to help these believers both internally in their hearts and externally in their lives to be able to follow Christ in this suffering. In chapter 1 we saw, didn't we, that right at the beginning God wanted to lay a foundation for these believers to be able to walk in their suffering by them having a confident identity of who they were in Christ. And we also saw in chapter 1 him giving them exhortations about how to respond to their suffering appropriately. And then in chapter 2 and in the first half of chapter 3, we've seen that what God's been doing is he's been showing these believers that through their suffering, he's calling them to go from immaturity to maturity and that he wants to use them as evangelical tools in the hostile society that they're living in through submitting to people who they have an impersonal relationship with and those that they have a personal relationship with. This is what God's been doing up until now. Now what we're going to see over the next two weeks is that what Peter's going to be teaching us on, what the Lord's going to teach us on, is how we can practically follow Jesus in our suffering. How we are to be his disciple as we walk through suffering in our lives. If you remember in the Gospels, Jesus said, didn't he, that if we are going to be his disciple, we must deny ourselves daily, pick up our cross, and follow him. And in a very real way, over the last six weeks, we've been focusing upon the denial of self part of that command. We've been seeing how we are called to deny our will and place ourselves under our Father's will in allowing suffering in our lives. But now, we're changing our direction and we're going to see what it is that we need to do to follow Jesus Christ in our suffering. This is what he's going to do. So what we see today in our text is three sections. I tend to do three sections every week, so I apologise about that, but I I sort of see those three sections again. And in our first section, which is in verses 13 to 16, what Peter's doing is he's wanting to give these believers a good start in following Christ in their suffering. And the reason he's doing that, brothers and sisters, is because oftentimes when we come up against suffering in our lives, 
it takes us by surprise, doesn't it? We can be distressed by suffering coming to us. We can be discouraged by it. It can overtake us and it can lead us to being pretty unstable as believers. There's a good example of this in the Apostle Paul's life. When he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, he said, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. And so you see there in that verse that even the Apostle Paul, the great man, the most, I would say, spirit-filled man in the New Testament, the man that God used to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, even he, when he came up against his suffering, despaired even for life. I'm sure many of you in here have been in a place where you've been going along quite nicely as a Christian, all nice and stable, everything's good, and then bang, something comes up against you, something you didn't expect, something that takes you by surprise, leads you to be distressed and discouraged and you feel overwhelmed. You don't know what to do. Where is God? I mean, has anyone had that experience in here? It's a common experience for Christians. And so what we find, brothers and sisters, is at the start of our suffering, that can often be the most unstable place for us as believers. And so in this first section, Peter's heart is he wants to establish these believers that he's writing to in a good way for them to follow Christ practically in their suffering. And he brings up three things in this section. The first thing he brings up is in verses 13 and 14 and the beginning of verse 15 where he is wanting them to have at the forefront of their heart a confidence in the sovereignty of God in their suffering. He starts off by saying, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? And that's a follow-on from what he was talking about last week when he was encouraging us to live in the submission of Christ in our relationships together. And that as we do that, what did it say? The eyes of the Lord will be upon us at all times, which means that God the Father will watch our lives continuously. He will watch over us. And so as a follow-on to that, Peter's saying, well, if that's the case, who on earth can harm you if you become followers of good? And the answer is no one. And what he's doing in this is he's wanting to emphasize the sovereignty that God has in every aspect of our life. He then goes on in verse 14 to say, but even if you should suffer For righteousness' sake you are blessed. Again, that's something that he's pointing back to, which he's already taught, which is if you suffer as a believer in innocence, God looks favorably upon you, and he will reward you. And the emphasis that Peter's trying to bring out here is upon the sovereignty of God in the result of our suffering and the destination of it. And then the last thing he says is this phrase, and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. And that's a verse that comes from Isaiah 8. When Isaiah is given a prophecy about the captivity of Israel. And it's a verse that comes after Isaiah has been told, if the recipients don't receive your prophecy and they call you a conspiracy theorist, you should not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. 
And so the emphasis here that Peter's wanting to bring out is that, was, that for Isaiah, he was called not to be fearful of man, but to be fearful of God. And so Peter's wanting to bring out that God even has sovereignty over the actions of unbelievers. I think it's pretty obvious, brothers and sisters, that in these first two verses, the emphasis that Peter's wanting to bring out is the sovereignty of God. He wants them to have a confidence in it. But he then says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. So having established the importance of sovereignty, he then says, but you must set apart God in your hearts as the only Lord. And so that speaks to me that some of these believers, what they were doing is they didn't have God on the front of their hearts. I mean, have you ever been in a situation like I have this week? (laughs) Where someone's wanting to persecute you. Someone's wanting to uh, bring suffering to your life. Have you ever noticed how that person seems to take over your mind? How that person seems to take over the emotions of your heart? And what is that? Well, that person actually has taken place on the throne of your heart. And God is not there anymore. And that's not good. And this is what was happening to some of these believers. They were placing their persecutors, those who were causing suffering in their lives, on the throne of their heart. And Peter's saying, no, don't do that. I want you to follow Christ and have confidence in God's sovereignty. The fact that he controls your very existence, that he controls the destination that you're going to, that he controls even the actions of unbelievers in your life. What assurance that is for us, brothers and sisters, to have confidence in God's sovereignty. And of course, this would set them up in a good way to follow Jesus in their suffering because, listen, if you have confidence in God's sovereignty in your life, you're more likely to persevere in your suffering in the long term. So therefore, this was the first thing that Peter wanted to bring out. The second thing is found in the rest of verse 15, where he says, And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And so what Peter's bringing out here is this reality that sometimes when we go through suffering, God doesn't always answer us straight away. We pray to him, Lord, remove me from this situation. And he doesn't. For a season. And what happens when you're in that place is unbelievers watch you. They watch you going through this suffering and they ask questions. The questions that can come up are why does God let you go through suffering if you're a Christian? The other question can be why do you still have hope in God to deliver you from this suffering? And it's then that we need to follow Christ and be ready to give an answer to them in that situation, to answer that question, why does God allow suffering? To answer that question, why do we still hope in God to deliver us? He says there that we need to do this with meekness and fear. And the reason why he's saying that is because when we are praying to God, when we're in suffering and he's not answering, we can feel frustrated, can't we? And if an unbeliever comes up to you and starts questioning your God and the relationship you have with him, you might respond to that unbeliever not with meekness and fear. You might respond in anger, in frustration. 
you might discredit your own witness to that person. And so he's saying, don't do that. Do this answering to these unbelievers with gentleness and with reverence to God. Now the benefit of this, the reason why Peter's calling these believers to this is because if you have an answer to these questions, you yourself feel encouraged. If you know why God is allowing you through suffering and you know why you still have hope in him, you persevere more. It also benefits unbelievers because in you being able to give them an answer, that might be their only way to being introduced to God. That might be their only way to hear about Jesus Christ and what he's done for them on the cross. And the point I'm trying to make here to us, brothers and sisters, and I think this is the application that God wants to bring out, is that we need to spend more time thinking about how we will answer unbelievers. How we will answer questions like, why does God let you through suffering? Why do you still believe God when he's allowing this terrible thing in your life? And may I make a suggestion to you that if you can't answer those questions in here this morning, then I've obviously done a bad job over the last six weeks. But, joke aside, I would advise you to buy an apologetics book on suffering. I'm not the greatest expert on the best books out there. If you want to ask someone, ask Pastor John Brown afterwards. He probably knows more than I do. But I do believe that God is calling us, brothers and sisters, to spend more time in the technical aspect of giving an answer to unbelievers. We can't just rely upon the spur of the moment answer. We must study to show ourselves approved that we can give this answer because if we don't do this, then we stand to be discouraged in our suffering and those unbelievers stand to not have a good witness of Jesus Christ. And that's obviously not what we want, is it? So the third and final thing that he wants to bring out, that he wants these believers to have at the forefront of their heart to give them a good start in following Christ in their suffering is in verse 16, where he says that he wants them to have a good conscience. Now, the word for conscience there is that part of our heart that is able to discern between right and wrong. And when he says that he wants them to have a good conscience, it's this idea that he doesn't want them to have any internal conviction of willful sin in their lives. He wants that good conscience in them. Now, before I go ahead in sort of explaining this a bit more about what he's saying, I want to make a, a theological point. And th- this is th- what I want to say. That when we become believers, we know, don't we, brothers and sisters, that the Spirit comes to dwell within us. But we still have that tendency to want to sin. We still have that law of sin in our flesh that sometimes drags us away. On a daily basis, he can do that. And there's a big difference between a Christian struggling with the tendency to go back to sin and someone who's a born-again Christian who's actually willfully sinning. If someone who says they're a born-again Christian is willfully sinning, is choosing to sin when they know what Jesus has done for them on the cross, they will not have a good conscience. The Spirit will convict that person to repent 
And if they don't repent, their heart will get harder and harder, and they'll often get to a place where they don't even know what they're doing is sin anymore. And when someone's in that place, brothers and sisters, if an unbeliever was to assess their life, that unbeliever would have every right to say that they were an evildoer because they're committing evil. That unbeliever would have every right to revile their conduct in Christ. Because even though in one sense they might be following Christ in one area, in another they're not. And so for, an unbelie- for, sorry, for a believer who's doing this, it's a very sad state to be in. It's not what God wants. That person will lose the credibility of their witness. But what God calls us to is to have a good conscience. To have a heart that, yes, may struggle with the temptation to go back to sin, but has no internal conviction of willful sin in their lives. Because if you have that good conscience, brothers and sisters, when an unbeliever tries to defame you as an evildoer, which means to criminalize you as an evildoer, when they try to revile your good conduct in Christ, guess what? They will be ashamed. Because when an assessment's made of your life, no willful sin will be found. And they will be seen as a liar. They will be seen as the hypocrite. And if they are the cause of that person's persecution, then that persecution will stop. Because you've been found to be innocent. And so I would suggest, brothers and sisters, that having a good conscience is extremely important if you're going through suffering at this time. It's extremely important because it may well be the way that you get delivered from your persecution in the first place. And so if any of you are in here today and you are suffering at the hands of someone who's an unbeliever, I would ask you when you go home to ask God, God, do I have a good conscience? Am I sinning in any specific way at the moment? Because if you are... Repent of it and get right with God. And you may find that that delivers you from your suffering. Especially, listen, if that sin is towards the person who's actually persecuting you in the first place. Then God would call you to go to that person, repent of your sin, ask for forgiveness, and then hopefully it will bring peace to that situation. So these three things, brothers and sisters, having a confidence in the sovereignty of God, being ready to give a defense, and having a good conscience. These are three things that will guarantee you to have a good start in following Christ in whatever suffering you go through. I know for me this week, what the Lord's been speaking to me about is that, is that I struggle with having confidence in his sovereignty. I've really, really learned that this week. (laughs) I've really learned that when it comes down to it, I really struggle to confidently believe that God has absolute control over everything in my life. And that's really shocked me, to be honest. But God is gracious. He's helping me through that. But the question I I have for you is, which one is it for you? Which one would you struggle with if you were to look at this Look at your heart in these, regard, in, in, these, in these things. Think about this this week, brothers and sisters. Assess your heart. Ask the Lord to search your heart 
so that you can grow and make sure that you have these three, three things down in your hearts so that whenever you go through suffering in your life, you will at least get off to a good start. Amen? So moving on to our next section, which is in verses 17 to 22. Um, This is a a great section of scripture. Uh, I'm excited to bring this to you. It's very theologically rich. Um, It's a privilege to share it with you, so I'm asking God to give me the utterance to, to do it appropriately. Um, But what Peter's doing in this section of 1 Peter 3 is following on from wanting to give these believers a good start. What he's doing now is he wants to get their focus as they walk with Christ through their suffering in the right place. And that focus is found in verse 17 where he says, For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. In other words, what Peter's saying there is it's better for us as Christians if by doing good and in innocence we suffer than it is if we suffer in doing evil. And the focus that he wants us to have is the fact that it is better to go through that, which means it's more advantageous for us as believers to suffer for doing what is good than to suffer for doing what is evil. And what he's doing in this section is he's going to help us to maintain that focus in our life. Because listen to me, brothers and sisters, if you ever lose focus of the fact that it is more advantageous for you to suffer for doing what is good, you will potentially slow down or even stop what God wants to do in you through your suffering and also in other people. So it's very important that we keep this focus. It is more advantageous and better for us to go through this. And he does it in a very interesting way. What he does is he brings up an example of the suffering of Christ. And he shows us the result of that suffering. And through that is going to help us to keep going and have the right focus as we go on. So he starts off in verse 18 by saying, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. What a wonderful verse that is. We could just spend a whole sermon on that, couldn't we? (laughs) But there's a reality that the focus that that Peter has here is on the cross, when Jesus was there and when he suffered for us on the cross. Jesus suffered on the cross, brothers and sisters, because he took the sin of the world upon himself. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he who knew no sin became sin for us. Jesus suffered on the cross, brothers and sisters, because he was separated from his Father for three hours. And we cannot imagine how much suffering that must have meant for Christ and for the Father. That had never happened in eternity before. Brothers and sisters, when Jesus suffered on the cross, he suffered as a just man. He was the only sinless man to ever live. And when he was on that cross, he was there for us, unjust people, sinful people, so that he might bring us to God. 
by being put to death in the flesh, which is a reference to his physical death, but then being made alive by the Spirit, which is a reference to him being resurrected from the dead. Because in Romans chapter 1 verse 4 it says that when Jesus was risen from the dead, it was by the Spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit. And so with this this in mind, brothers and sisters, we know, don't we, that when Christ came to the earth, he came with the focus to go to the cross. We learned, didn't we, in Philippians 2, earlier on in our series, that Jesus laid aside his glory, he came to the earth as a man to do the good thing of going to the cross to die for the sins of the world. And that because, because he was an innocent man, because he was sinless, that sacrifice was perfect. It only had to happen once. So that there was a chance for every man, woman and child to get saved if they put their faith in what Jesus did for them. And so we see from this verse, brothers and sisters, that the first result of Christ suffering for doing what is good is that sin may be defeated in each of our lives. That's the first thing that he's wanting to bring up. Then he goes on in verses 19 to 20, and he says the following. He says, By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. Now, I have to say these two verses. <laughs> these two verses in the whole of our text today are probably the most controversial verses. And they're controversial because over the centuries, different Christians have had different interpretations of them. And when you look at all of the different interpretations, there are three main ones. And I think for us to be sincere, for us to be consistent and to be fair with our Bible study, we do need to consider the three of them briefly. And then I will give you my conviction about which one I think fits best to the context and what Peter's wanting to say. Now the first interpretation, which is very, very common, is that when it says in verse 19, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, it's a reference to the work of the Spirit of Christ in Noah when he was preparing the ark. And that this idea of him preaching is him preaching righteousness to the unsaved who were the spirits in the prison of their own flesh. And of course they were disobedient and so therefore as Noah was building the ark only eight of them got saved. That's the first interpretation. The second interpretation is that where it says by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison it's a reference to Jesus going to the place of the dead or Hades between his death and resurrection. And where it says he preached to the spirits in prison This interpretation thinks that he's preaching to those people who perished in the flood. Those spirits who are now in prison. That's the second interpretation. And the third interpretation is that where it says, in verse 19 again, that he went to preach to the spirits in prison, it's a reference to Jesus going down to the place of the dead between his death and resurrection, and he was preaching to demonic spirits who were in prison because they were disobedient in the time of Noah. That's the third interpretation. 
Now, my conviction about which one best fits is that when Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison, it is a reference to him going to preach to demonic spirits in Hades between his death and resurrection. Now, let me explain that, okay? In Genesis 6, when you read Genesis 6, you have a very bad picture of the world. There's this reality that the world was full of sin, it was full of violence. It was a very corrupt and bad place. And one of the things that was terrible at that time is that fallen angels who were cast down to the earth with Satan in the first rebellion, they left their own abode and from being invisible they became visible and angels can do that according to the New Testament because in the New Testament it says that sometimes when we show hospitality to strangers we are actually entertaining angels. So angels can do that. They left their own abode and they saw the daughters of men as being attractive and they took them as wives. And they had sexual intercourse with them. And what happened was that these ladies gave birth to, as it says in Genesis 6, men of renown, which I believe is a reference to giants that were on the earth before the flood. Now, I believe that the New Testament confirms this interpretation that what happened was was that when these angels left their abode God looked upon that and he was absolutely detested of it and he condemned those fallen angels to a place in the place of the dead where they are now in everlasting chains awaiting judgment and you see that the New Testament confirms this interpretation in two places and I'm just going to bring two verses or two sections of scripture up now The first one is in 2 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 and 5 where it says For if God did not spare the angels who sinned but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment and listen and did not spare the ancient world but saved Noah, one of eight people a preacher of righteousness bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly So what I want you to notice from those two verses is Peter's making reference to angels that have been uh, cast down to hell who sinned and he links that with the time of Noah. I believe making reference to what these fallen angels did then. And then in the second portion of scripture that confirms this interpretation is in Jude verses 6 and 7 where we read the following. Where it says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, in a similar manner to these, listen, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone off to strange flesh, were set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. And again, if you look at those two verses, you've got angels who left their proper abode have been judged in this um, everlasting chains under darkness and it's linked to sexual immorality the same way that Sodom and Gomorrah were involved in sexual immorality. So I believe, brothers and sisters, that the spirits in prison 
that have been mentioned in verse 19 is a reference to these demonic spirits that were in the place of the dead. And Jesus went to preach to them between his death and resurrection. Well, why did he do that? Well, because in Colossians 2 it says that on the cross, this is a great verse, Jesus defeated Satan. Jesus defeated every fallen angel. And so when he went down to preach to these spirits in prison, he was preaching to them about the reality that their condemnation was confirmed. That they were going to be judged and spend the rest of eternity in the lake of fire with Satan. And so in this very verse, we see the second result of Jesus suffering for doing what is good. And that is that evil is defeated. Amen? What a great thing that not only did Jesus give us an opportunity to have our sin dealt with, but he, through the cross, has defeated Satan once and for all. It's confirmed that Satan in the future and his fallen angels will be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. And they will be judged because of their rebellion against God. So having laid out these two results, what he then does is he goes on in verses 20 and 21 to give a comparison. And he compares the the waters of the flood at the end of verse 20 that saved these eight souls, Noah and his family, through the ark with baptism in verse 21. Can you see that there? Now, When you look at that word baptism in verse 21, it would be very easy, I think, to assume that he's talking about water baptism because of the fact that he is comparing water with water, etc., etc. And I, I'll be honest, I've undenied about this the whole week. And I have come to the conviction that I don't think that Peter is talking about water baptism in verse 21. I do believe that what he's talking about is the baptism in the Spirit. Because he says that this baptism saves us. Can you notice that there in verse 21? Now, water baptism doesn't save us, doesn't it? Does it? There's nothing that pr- protects us from evil by you going down into the water and then coming back up. But baptism in the Spirit does. If you notice, he says there that baptism is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And my belief, brothers and sisters, is is that he's doing that there because he's wanting to say that we are baptized in the Spirit, meaning that we're submerged under the influence of the Spirit when we become born again. Because what did we learn in our first message? We learned that we are born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so when we are born again, we are not only born again in our spirit, but we are baptized in the spirit. We are submerged under his influence for the rest of our lives. And this is uh, confirmed, brothers and sisters, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, where Paul says, For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. And you'll notice there that I've used the new international version. (laughs) So before you start throwing tomatoes at me about using that version, particularly Will, um, I 
want to say that on this verse, I do think the New International Version represents the original language better. And what this verse basically teaches, brothers and sisters, is that when we are born again, we are born into that body of Christ, into the church. And at the same time, we are baptized with the Spirit. And so therefore, baptism in the Spirit and being born again are one and the same thing. And he's bringing this up, brothers and sisters, in verse 21, because he wants all of the believers to know that the benefits of baptism of the Spirit, which I'll come on to in a minute, is for every single believer, not for a select few. So, he's, so having established that this baptism is baptism in the Spirit, let's go back to the comparison and see why he makes it. Now let's think about what happened in the flood. In the flood, Noah and his family were saved from the dominance of sin in the world. We know, don't we, from Genesis 6, as I've said previously, that the world was full of sin, it was an extremely bad place, and the water washed that all away, got rid of the dominance of sin. But listen, Noah and his family weren't freed from the presence of sin, because they were still sinners. And that is exactly the reason why he compares the water of the flood with baptism in the Spirit, because exactly the same thing happens when we are baptized in the Spirit. When we are baptized in the Spirit and born again, we are freed, brothers and sisters, from the dominance of sin in our lives. We can say no to it, can't we? We don't have to live in it anymore, but you're not freed from the presence of sin. That's why he's making this comparison. Now, the reason he's bringing this up is because of that word saves there in verse 21. That word saves there, when you look at it in the Greek, means to be kept safe. And so I believe that the reason why Peter's bringing up this comparison between the the flood of uh, Noah and baptism in the Spirit is because now, as born-again believers who have been baptized in the Spirit, knowing that we are going to suffer for doing what is good, we have the ability within us through the Spirit to be kept safe through whatever suffering we go through. We have the ability to actually walk through that suffering. We have the power to do it. And when you allow the Spirit to let you walk through whatever suffering you're going through, you will see the same results that Jesus achieved when he suffered for doing what is good. You will see sin defeated in your life. You will see evil defeated in your life. And you will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. What a great thing that is. That you can have confidence, brother and sister, that having been baptized in the Spirit, you have everything that you need to walk through whatever suffering you go through. And the best thing about it is that there's benefit for you. That you will become more like Christ. Hallelujah. And he says then in verse 22, speaking of Jesus, that Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. And he's saying this here because he's wanting these believers to know that having been given the spirit and having been given the ability to walk through suffering, that whatever suffering they go through, they can know that it has not gone through without Jesus saying that it should happen. Because Jesus has absolute authority. 
He is above angels, he is above authorities, he is above all powers. So whatever happens to you in your life, brother and sister, Jesus has allowed that to happen. Listen, because he wants to make you more like himself so that you can be with him in eternity forever. What a great thing that is. I mean, can you think of a better motivation to go through suffering for doing what is good than the fact that you are going to be like Christ and you are going to be with him forever? Is there a better motivation? No, there isn't. That is the best motivation, and that is what we must keep our focus on, that we will stand to benefit and be advantaged by suffering for doing what is good. So if you're suffering in here this morning, brother and sister, for doing what is good, be encouraged. As a born-again believer, you have everything within you to walk through that suffering, and ultimately, you are going to be with Christ forever in his glory. So let us keep that focus. So going into our last section, in verses 1 to 4, in chapter 4, what Peter's doing here is having established these believers in making a good start in their walks with Jesus in their suffering and having given them the right focus. What he's doing in these first four verses of chapter 4 is he's wanting them to be realistic about their suffering. He's wanting them to have a reality check about suffering in their lives. And we need this as well. We need to be realistic with exactly what Peter's going to speak. He starts off in verse 1 by saying, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now we've already established in our second section that Jesus suffered the most when he was on the cross, battling with sin, having sin laid upon him. And he then says, arm yourselves also with the same mind. And he's saying that there because, listen, the battle that Jesus had with sin on the cross when he suffered in the flesh will be a battle that we will have to go through for our entire Christian lives. If you remember in my fourth message in this series, I talked about the fact that when we become born again, the Spirit comes to dwell within us and we have the law of the Spirit placed in us which gives us this desire to follow God and do his will. But we also have the law of sin, which I've mentioned already today, that draws us back to live that sinful life. So whereas when you were an unbeliever, there was no competition for your attention, when you become a believer, a battle begins in your heart between this law of the spirit and the law of sin. And that battle, brothers and sisters, often leads to suffering in our lives. Because as we go through that battle, we're grieved by the presence of sin in our flesh, and we often fail, don't we? We fall again into that law of sin, and that can lead to suffering. But slowly but surely, as we learn to follow Christ, and as we're obedient to him, that law of sin becomes less dominant in our lives, And we grow in this law of the Spirit. And what that results in is it means that the things that we used to be entrenched in, maybe when we first became a believer, don't entice us anymore. So maybe you've heard of stories of people like, um, uh, most of you have probably heard of Nicky Cruz in here. 
who's a famous Pentecostal uh, preacher in America. And he was very much into drugs before he got saved. But as soon, as soon as he got saved, he, I think if I remember rightly, he got delivered from that. But I think he still struggled with it. But over the years, he's not struggled with it anymore. And why is that? Because he's grown in the law of the Spirit. And this is why he says there, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Because this battle that we go through when we become believers, brothers and sisters, produces suffering. But as we go through that suffering, battling between the law of sin and the law of the Spirit, we cease from sin because we grow in the Spirit and we don't get tempted to do the things that we used to in the past. This is what he's saying here. And so the result of that is in verse 2 where it says that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men but for, will, for the will of God. And so as you grow in this law of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, what begins to happen in your life is you no longer live for what man lives for, but you begin to live for what God wants in your life. But I must make an important point here. And that is that even though we see this progression in our lives as believers, there is a reality that this side of eternity we're not going to be perfect. And so what that means is, is that there's always potentially going to be this battle taking place in our life between the law of sin and the law of the spirit. And so therefore there's always going to be the chance that we may suffer because of that and that we might have to follow Christ in that suffering. And this is the point that Peter's wanting to get at in verse 2. He's wanting to get these believers to have a reality check that this suffering that comes from this battle is a lifelong thing and they should expect that to be the case. He then goes on in verses 3 and 4 to say, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation speaking evil of you. And this little section is really a follow-on from what he's already said in verses 1 and 2. And in verse 3, he highlights possibly some of the sins that these believers were involved in before they became uh, Christians. He talks there about lewdness and lusts, which is a reference to sexual sin. He talks about drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties. I mean, if you want a good example of that, just go down Prince of Wales Street on a Friday or Saturday night. This is uh, talking about um, sin with regard to alcohol and then abominable idolatries, which is the reality of worshipping false gods. So, so there's a reality that some of these believers maybe were involved in this, but having been saved, they've been delivered from that, and are now not living in it. And he says in verse 4 that having been delivered from these things, the unbelievers that they know find it very strange. They find it very odd that these believers don't, do the same things that they do anymore. He says to them that they find it odd that they don't run with them in the same flood of dissipation, which is this idea that uh, they find it odd that you don't uh, see life as being pointless and just, you know, live your life now. You've only got one life, etc., etc. And so because of that, they speak evil of you, which is basically that they blaspheme you. I had a good example of this in my early Christian years 
when I was living in a house with unbelievers as a medical student. And before I got saved, I'll be honest, I was a bit of a party animal. And I was a bit of a womanizer, if I'm being completely honest. I'm not uh, proud of that. But my friends used to love the fact that I was, I was like that. Hey, Adam, come on, let's go. Let's go out on Friday and Saturday night and let's go and find some women. And then I got saved. And there was a complete transformation in my life. And I didn't do that stuff anymore. I struggled with the desire to do it, but I didn't do it. And so there was this one time where I remember telling my friends that I was going to church on Sunday night. And my friend Jabba, an Iraqi chap, he said, Come on, Adam. Come on. You're just going to church to get girls, aren't you? And I have to be honest, that really upset me. Because, of course, that wasn't the case. I was going to church because I wanted to worship God. But that's an example of someone blaspheming me because of the fact that I'm not doing the same things that I did before. And I'm sure some of you have got examples of this in your own life. Maybe when you're at work or you're with family or friends and you say that you're not going to do something because you're a Christian, have you ever noticed how they get this kind of glazed look over their face? Or they don't speak to you maybe in the same way as they used to? That is because in their heart, they find you're very odd. They think you're strange, that you're some of the, maybe in nutcases involved in the cult or whatever. And so in their heart, they speak evil of you. Or they may even blaspheme you to your face. But the reason why Peter's bringing this up is because he's wanting to make the point that, look, given the fact that you're always going to face the, the battle of sin and the spirit in your life, you need to be aware that there's always going to be a sin that you're going to be delivered from. Amen. There's always going to be a sin that you're going to be free from. Amen. But the problem with that is that there's always going to be an unbeliever who might speak evil of you. And so in a very real way, in verses 1 and 2, we see that the battle with sin is a lifelong thing. But in verses 3 and 4, we see that persecution from unbelievers, because of the fact that we are not living the way that they do, is a lifelong thing. And this is the reality check and and, and the realism that Peter's wanting to bring to these believers. Because he does not want them to have unrealistic expectations for their lives. And it's the same for us today. This is why it grieves me that churches teach that you can have your best life now. This is why it grieves me that churches say your life as a believer is prosperity, prosperity, prosperity. And that's all it is. And I'm not saying that those things aren't entirely true, but they are half-truths. They're not the whole truth. We Christians need to have the whole truth given to us, not the half-truth. And the fact is, brothers and sisters, is that suffering in the Scriptures is a lifelong thing for believers. But in the future, there will be no suffering. Our hope is not in now, it's in the future. When we are with Jesus forever, when all sin will be defeated, and there will be no more problems anymore. I can't wait to get there. And we need to have this reality check, brothers and sisters, because of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15:19, where he says, I think that's, yeah, that is, where he says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men 
to be most pitiable. Speaking of this reality, that our hope needs to be in Christ, not only now, but in the future, when we will be with him forever, free from sin. Brothers and sisters, we've seen today that Peter's intention in this text is to help these believers to be disciples of Christ in their suffering. We've seen that he has wanted to get them off to a good start. He wants their focus to be right and he wants them to be realistic about suffering in their lives. And so I'd encourage you this week to think about these three sections and ask the Lord whether you're walking in them. Because I can guarantee you that if you apply these truths to your life, you will be able to walk through whatever suffering comes your way that Jesus allows in your life. And not only will you be able to walk through it, you will be fruitful in it. What an amazing thing that is, that you can know that whatever suffering you go for, not only can you walk through it, but you can actually bear fruit for God in your life and in other people's lives. To me, brothers and sisters, that seems like the life that God wants us to live. So let us live it. I just want to end, though, speaking to those people either in here or who are listening online who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. You might be thinking that I don't want to follow Jesus because it seems like my life will be all about suffering. I don't want to follow Jesus because it sounds like it's going to be a difficult time. But let me ask you a question if you're thinking that. That as as an unbeliever, you still suffer. Suffering comes to both believers and unbelievers because we live in a sinful world. But the difference between you and me, whoever you might be, is that I have hope for the future. That I am going to be in a place where there will be no suffering. And God wants the same for you. And if you feel the Lord speaking to you about that, that he wants you to have that same hope, it's very easy to get that hope. You just need to simply acknowledge your sin before him, that you've fallen short of his perfect law and his glory. Put your faith in what Jesus did on the cross And you will be saved and you will have this great hope for the rest of your lives.